In the late 1930s and early 1940s, a courageous German citizen dared to stand against Hitler's rise to power. That man was the great Catholic philosopher Dietrich von Hildebrand. Join us today as we discuss Hildebrand's opposition to the Nazi regime with John Henry Crosby, president and founder of the Hildebrand Project and co-editor of Hildebrand's memoir, My Battle Against Hitler, Faith, Truth, and Defiance in the Shadow of the Third Reich. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement here at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, joined by our regular panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, uh, Professor of Systematic Theology here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, who holds the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization. And we're so proud to have one of our own, uh, John Henry Crosby, who is the uh, founder and president of the Hildebrand Project which is now being headquartered here uh, at, uh, at Franciscan University. You've earned both your BA uh, from the university as well as your uh, MA uh, in philosophy here at Franciscan University. Um, you're the editor of the new edition of Dietrich von Hildebrand's The Heart, uh, co-translator uh, of Hildebrand's major philosophical work, um, and a principal compiler, and editor, and translator of this great book, uh, The Memoirs of Hildebrand's Anti-Nazi Papers, uh, My Battle Against Hitler. Uh, so welcome to the program, John Henry. Oh, I'm delighted to be here, Michael. It, it is always good to have an alum on the program uh, from the university, um, but I, I didn't mention that you have a, a lovely wife, and it, is it two kids, three? Two, two children. Yes, yes, that's right. That's and my right. wife is also an alum. That's right. Robin Roback. Which is, which is great to have you here. Um, so we're talking about Dietrich von Hildebrand. Um, so, so who was Dietrich von Hildebrand? And tell us a little about his early life. Well, I'll begin by saying that, particularly in the Catholic world, when Hildebrand is known as a great religious writer, uh, the author of books like Transformation in Christ, which uh, affected an entire generation of people, uh, paved the way for many conversions. He's also known for his philosophical writings. My organization is trying to, to raise that profile, and he had a great influence in the church. Uh, he had an influence on John Paul II. Uh, there's, there's a great deal of work to be done to show that influence on, on the Second Vatican Council, for example. But this book presents him in some ways for the first time to the world as the great uh, philosopher turned man of action yeah, uh, yeah. in the fight against National Socialism. Yeah, yeah. So, so he was, I, I guess there's, there's so many things about his early life that a lot of people don't know. I, when I first was introduced to him, it was more about marriage, and I, I thought it was just this Indeed. philosopher, but he really had so much in his early life that set him up uh, for where he went uh, as a philosopher, and as you said, as a man of action. I mean, there's so much there that uh, really, really needs to be unpacked, but what I didn't realize early on was that he wasn't always Catholic. That's right. He was a convert to Catholicism. And there, there's so much to be said about his life, so we, we, we'll keep it sort of brief here. But he grew up in a, in a remarkable artistic family. He was born in Florence, Italy, and then raised between Florence and Munich. His father and mother were, as, uh, as his wife Alice von Hildebrand likes to say, noble pagans. And she means that in the highest possible sense, they lived a kind of highly cultivated existence. Hmm. But their religion was art and beauty. And so going to a church was to go to see the beauties of the churches, which of course were many yeah. in, in Italy and in Germany. But it was, this, it was this early encounter with beauty that paved the way for his future conversion 
and uh, it was it was ultimately the beauty of the saints that captivated him right. really? as a young man. And oh. and his friend Max Shaler, who had a great influence on John Paul II, said to him one day, uh, and this struck von Hildebrand very forcefully. He said, "The Catholic Church is the true Church." And for von Hildebrand, that was a kind of confusing statement because churches weren't true or false; they were these cultural entities. They were sponsors of the arts. And, and Shaler sketched for von Hildebrand a, a, a wonderful portrait of St. Francis of Assisi, which is in one of Shaler's important works. And in that, he captured the idea of sanctity and holiness, he, a kind of profile of that. Hmm. And for von Hildebrand, this was beauty at a, at a, at a whole new level. It was hmm. irreducible yeah. to the natural world. You know, there's a hmm. breakthrough moment that you capture there with that Shaler statement. Yeah. And yet, at the same time, in your introduction, you point out that the seeds had been sown way back, because even though he was a noble pagan family member, there was a liberal Protestant attitude as well. And, you know, when he visited the museum, I think you point out that he would, you know, when he visited the church, I'm sorry, the Catholic church, they were treating it like a museum. Right. right. But he was genuflecting. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, he, saw I mean, something he, he was something like six or seven years That's old right. at the That's time, right. you know, and yet he, he sensed that you can't reduce this to mere beauty, that there is something that transcends the beauty of art, that it's not just aestheticism, you know. Right. And I, I think that is a penetrating insight into how personhood was already manifesting that openness to the yeah, divine absolutely. in a dynamic way. You know, so. what I find really telling is the date of his conversion, 1914. Right. I mean, the whole world is yeah. convulsed uh, by this global conflict, this conflagration, which even the accumulated riches of European art uh, can't prevent right. you know, this right. collapse uh, into barbarism. Mm -hmm. And I think that helped catalyze this movement into the true faith. And his recognition that to account for the luster of somebody like Francis of Assisi, you have to appeal to some transcendent principle, which is not available in nature. Right. That, that was a, a great breakthrough. Yeah. That was Shaler's point, too, about yeah. Francis of Assisi. That's right. that's right. But this is not natural virtue. The church yeah. produces saints, yeah, so that's right. where you belong. Yeah. That's right, that's right. No, you're, uh, both of your, your statements are very astute to Scott's point. I think it's so important to recognize that it wasn't that von Hildebrand himself was the sort of esthete his parents wa were as a young man. Already as a child, he was showing these remarkable sort of breakthrough moments. This, there was an independence from his right. environment, which yeah. strikes Intellectual me. Intellectual and other Intellectual yeah. and spiritual. Precisely, and, and, and all of these stories, they, they can sound a little hagiographical, but they're, they're, very, they're very much confirmed by von Hildebrand in his memoirs. Also, his sisters have said to Alice von Hildebrand, they describe these, these episodes, and for example, the visit to the, to the cathedral in Milan, where his sister said, if you don't stop genuflecting, I'll take you out of this church right now. But for him, there was something, uh, there was something necessary in that act of, of uh, it was a kind of first step towards worship and reverence, which were great categories. I, I think there's a point in the book where you quote a, a priest who, who on me, Meeting von Hildebrand remarked that I, I detect in you a sense of the supernatural right. mm. and a certain right. purity of heart That's that right. you don't ordinarily find in, right. in, right. in, in the quotidian world. Yeah. And, and there's no way to explain uh, the subsequent course of his life without this appeal to heroism and That's character. Right. There was right. something otherworldly about him and mm. something wonderfully indestructible. That's right. Marvelously right. resilient about, about his soul. Right. Just a, a wonderful man, so admirable in every way. Yeah. 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 And yet, despite being so otherworldly, so human and so right. capable of engaging people, he had innumerable followers. He was a great convert maker through his witness and example. He had over a hundred godchildren himself. Wow. And that's not, wow. that's not what, it, what, it, what an otherworldly person 
person who can't connect with people achieves. No, but, but it, there's a holy worldliness to him as well, and a kind of philosophically grounded one too. You trace it back to Husserl, and you recognize that Husserl at the time was sort of a magnet attracting people to right. who wanted to avoid reductionist philosophies that were just a dime a dozen. You know, Edith, you know, um, uh, who Edith am I thinking? Edith, Edith Stein, Stein, of course. But you know, the, the, the thought that he is in a search for the things themselves, yeah. you know, right. Right. that was the whole philosophical openness. That's right, that's right. Yeah, right. beautiful. So, so we have a whole foundation for his, his early conversions, his, his life, the seeds planted early on, but, but what was he doing at the time that the Nazis rose to power or they, they began to come in onto the stage? If you that's will. right, that's right. So a, a, a tiny bit of background. So in 1914, he converts to Catholicism, the war breaks out, but Hildebrand was an ardent opponent of German nationalism, which was very much right, at the root right. of this war. Yep. Uh, and in fact, he was such an opponent of it that he, he filed for conscientious objection and f fulfilled his military duty as working in a, in a Red Cross clinic. Right. And he only escaped deployment at the end when Germany was losing the war because he was diagnosed with appendicitis. So, his, uh, so, he, so this, already this early stance, which in and of itself is more an act of conscience right. than a public statement, tells you something about what was to come. So his, this hatred of nationalism put him on the radar with the Nazis uh, right. beginning in 1921. So he was, uh, he was appointed to the University of Munich in 1919. He was teaching philosophy. And uh, the Nazi movement, of course, was, was, was taking root in his hometown of Munich. And, uh, and so he had, a, he had front row seats, you might say. Right, right. And in 1921, he attended a peace conference in Paris, and he spoke forcefully against German nationalism, particularly the invasion of Belgium. Mm. And that created a kind of media scandal at home in Germany. He had to come back and defend himself, right. and it put him on the radar of the Nazis, because national, aggressive nationalism was a core tenet of, of, of National Socialism. Yeah. And then in 1923, also a profess, still a professor at the university, Hitler makes his first attempt to seize power, and Hitler, uh, von Hildebrand has to escape for his life because he's you know, a hit list. The story is so interesting that he's living in Munich at the, at the time of the famous Beer Hall Putsch. That's right. You know, where Hitler tried with 600 stormtroopers to kind of take things over. That's right. And, and you, you capture a moment because it isn't clear to von Hildebrand that it failed. That's right. I, it, it seems for that morning after, you know, right. that it was successful. And what, what, what struck me at the time is that most people decided later on to kind of react against Hitler when it became patently obvious, all right, too clear. Right, right. But before anything right. happened, you know, even before that failed, That's right. he was set against right. this man and everything right. he represented. Because it, the ideology? I mean, there, there's a sense in which his resistance uh, to Hitler, the rise of, of Nazism, was sort of consubstantial with his own being. Yeah. Mm. It, it's, yeah. He, he yeah. stood athwart what he called the heresy of the 19th and 20th centuries, nationalism. And not and just nationalism, but anti-Semitism anti oh, Yeah, that too. But, but let's, we need to distinguish, I, I think, between patriotism, which is a natural right. love for country, right, the right. little platoon, as Burke right. puts it, where you belong. Uh, but you don't want to impose that on other people. Right. Nationalism is a heresy. Mm -hmm. I think it was Camus who said, I love my country too much to be a nationalist. Yeah. Uh, Hildebrand loved all things German. Yeah. And, and that's why he saw in Austria the embodiment of all the great enduring values of German that's civilization. Right. He wanted to preserve that, but he didn't insist on imposing this imperial yeah. vision upon others. Hitler saw things differently. And this parallel uh, set of lives yeah. between the two of them from yeah. Munich onward is so instructive. Where did he get this prophetic uh, uh, vision Insane, and this yeah. strength of character yeah. to stand against this juggernaut? Because everybody else was submitting. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's, this is the great question that everyone asks because one can, one can identify many of the ingredients, but the question in the end is why does one person choose to act as Hildebrand did? You know, one has this independence of character, one has the, the, the remarkable, profound conversion, one has a, a great sense of responsibility that he exhibited. But in the end, it, you know, probably one can't just distill it. People want to know this because they want to know how do we create Hildebrands for our, That's right. our present the era. And in yeah. some sense, it's, it's speaking of, of the irreducibility of holiness to virtue, one can't reduce von Hildebrand to a recipe. But, but one can certainly identify the, the various strands that came together in him. And I think, as you said something very profound, that von Hildebrand's very being was consubstantial with his opposition, because his opposition to National Socialism was not primarily political. It was intellectual, spiritual, moral. It was everything it stood for. It was the nationalism. Mm. It was the aggression. Mm. It was the violence, well, he, he the materialism. He rightly saw in Hitler and Nazism the Antichrist. That's right. That's and, right. and those conversations he had with Eugenio Pacelli right. are, are so instructive. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not the so future sure. Pope. The future yeah, yeah. Pope. Pius the future Pope, Pope Pius XII. Right. But together they, they saw the nature of the beast, that, that Hitler really did represent the Antichrist. Right, right, right. And, and had to be resisted, even at the point of blood. And, and he was prepared to do that. You no, know, it's interesting because a lot of people still are aware of the fact that Cardinal Fallhaber preached these famous Advent sermons against Hitler back in 1933. Right. But we're talking 1921, 22, right, 23, right, you know, right. and Fallhaber was heroic for what he did. And he, he, of course, is the cardinal who later ordains Ratzinger, uh, a priest. But at the time, you know, there was Hildebrandt almost standing alone at great risk, and not just great risk, but at the cost of practically everything that's as right. well. That's yeah. right, that's right. You know, one, someone said to me once that Van Hildebrandt's problem with respect to his legacy is that he didn't die in his fight against Nazism. You know, with Dietrich Bonhoeffer and with right. so many others, yeah, you right, have people right. who gave their lives, but he yeah. would, I'm absolutely convinced, it's clear to me, he was perfectly willing to make that sacrifice. Oh, yeah. He simply right. didn't have to make it in right. the end. Right. But right. I think I, uh, something I want to emphasize here uh, that you keep bringing up is the earliness of this. And I, I think, it's a, it's a historical point, but I think I feel confident in saying that von Hildebrand was perhaps the first prominent German figure to fully recognize National Socialism and to yeah. publicly denounce it. I mean, one d just doesn't get earlier than 1921. And, and so he was the first that they targeted, too, that's right. from that's the right. very beginning. That's right. So, so, so what he, he spoke on it. What were some of the concrete steps he did in, in opposing them? That's right. What got well, him into some serious trouble? <laughs> okay, so one, one should distinguish between the time he spent in Germany and then he moves to Austria. So in, in, he was a professor in Germany in Munich and as the Nazi movement was gaining steam, he became more and more vocally uh, opposed to it. Uh, the anti-Semitism was of course something he was particularly upset about. Now one has to note that after the Beer Hall Putsch in 1923, there was a moment when everyone thought Hitler was gone. That's and right. so in some respects, in fact the Nazi party doesn't even show up in the national elections. It's only in 1928 right. that they, they begin to gain momentum. In 1930, they become a very large force. And then, of course, Hildebrand's concerns increase and his statements become more outspoken. Right. But there was a moment then, particularly in 1930, 31, 32, where even the church and Catholic, the Catholic leadership, in some sense, abandoned its right. previous critique right. yes. and began to flirt with National Socialism. They wanted to rationalize right. building bridges. They wanted to, to speak about putting Catholicism at the front of the National Socialist right. movement. Right. This is the moment in which he became particularly outspoken. And finally, Hitler comes to power in 1933, and he realizes, I can't either fulfill my vocation as a philosopher or as a Christian, because both require me to speak openly, and I can't do that in a country run by a criminal, as he said. And so he goes to Austria, not to escape National Socialism, but to fight it. Right. Right. And there he founds a newspaper, and it was there in the pages of that paper that it, he it, carried it's out. It's so his. exhilarating. I mean, this, this 
posture of recalcitrance <laughs> against Hitler. There's no room to maneuver. I can't compromise on this. Absolutely. Here is the Antichrist. That's right. uh, there's no, there's no uh, uh, third way. And yet, you're right, many leaders in, in the church did succumb. They thought, oh, we can baptize uh, this yeah. movement. Yeah, we right can right. somehow uh, make it, we can sanitize it. Yeah. But no, I mean, Hitler was like that serpent, uh, says von Hildebrand, who when you look at him, he seduces you. Right. And, and paralyzes the terror you. And, and intimidation I'm gonna have to uh, are overpowered. Cut off here. Hold that thought. Let's carry it on to the next segment. You won't want to miss the next segment on University Presents. Dietrich von Hildebrand was violently opposed to the anti-Semitism of Nazism. And we can get an idea of his struggle from a story he tells in his memoirs. He was invited to the Archdiocesan Seminary in Vienna in 1934 to give a talk. And at the end of the talk, he made a great point of the fact that anti-Semitism is utterly opposed to Christianity. And he tells in his memoirs that when he made that point against anti-Semitism, half of the audience stood up and left in protest. And that shows that von Hildebrand was dealing with anti-Semitism not only uh, in the Nazis, but even in a subtle form among fellow Catholics. People recognize Franciscan University as being academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We have the unique opportunity through our faculty members, through our students, to proclaim that academic excellence by reaching out in many different ways. We also remain passionately Catholic in the way in which we are able to worship, the way in which we are able to uh, bring that love of Christ to others on a daily basis. It's important for us to be able to embrace both. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, today we've been talking with John Henry Crosby who edited and translated the memoirs of Dietrich von Hildebrand, My Battle Against Hitler. Um, John Henry, we, we got cut off. There were so many things that we wanted to unpack. So let's go back a little bit to uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand, particularly as he, as he just came into Austria. He left Germany uh, because he wanted to continue to fight. He wanted to keep speaking. So he ended up in Austria. So what happened when he came to Austria? What did he do? That's right. So I think it's so important to emphasize that he didn't flee. Sometimes bios will, will say that he had to flee or that he, uh, he went into hiding. If nothing could be further from the truth. There were concerns of his safety, but he could, after all, have remained silent. He could have changed his course, as many other Germans, uh, particularly public figures, did. But he knew he was called to speak out. So he went, in fact, first before going to Austria, he went to his ancestral home in Florence. And really, he went there to discern his future. He didn't know what he would do, but he wanted to do something substantive and mm. concrete. And he began to watch the young chancellor of Austria, Engelbert Dollfuss. And he, he detected in him the only head of state who, at that moment, was forcefully opposed and openly opposed to the Nazi regime, of course, right on his border. And so he conceived of the idea of going to Dollfuss and offering himself, as he said, as an intellectual officer. He said, I want to be an intellectual <laughs> officer in this battle of worldviews. And in fact, Dollfuss, when he finally met him, it took some doing. Dollfuss said, I fully agree, this is not just a political battle, it's a battle of worldviews. So he, he sponsored Hildebrand in founding an anti-Nazi newspaper. And I think one can rightly say this became the premier intellectual and cultural uh, publication in the fight against National Socialism, yeah. and it galvanized the resistance in right. Vienna. So yeah, can I make two quick points? One is, you, you have the sense throughout his life that he was really in charge. He was the architect of his future, captain of his ship. And, and 
the protagonist. He's making choices that will determine yeah. uh, the outcome yeah. of, of a drama. The, the, the identification with the Jew, I, I think, is mm. so beautiful. He, he says, I am a non-Aryan as well, so dismiss me from the faculty if you must, but I want to go with my people. Uh, right. Spiritually, we're all Semites. That took rare courage. Absolutely. And, and the other point is about Dolphus. What an extraordinary man he was. Yeah. Yeah. So thoroughly admirable, and the synergy between the two of them is, is, is so creative and could have been fruitful in a long term if only Dolphus had survived. And what a tragedy yeah. when they finally kill him and he bleeds to death yeah. on the floor of his Denied own Denied the office. sacraments that he asked for, a very, very, an art An astonishing Catholic. character. I want to make two points also because on the one hand, I think we have to understand why people would accommodate National Socialism, the Nazis. I think it's because, you know, communism, you know, international socialism seemed to be such a bigger enemy and because the Nazis were such anti-communists, right. we can accommodate the National Socialists who are closer to us to keep away the international socialists, the communists. I think it's also something that is sort of subterranean within certain people, that if you can't beat the enemy, find an enemy you can beat, you know, and, and then make him your target. It's easier to fight the communists who are far away. Mm -hmm. The other thing I'd want to make a point about is the fact that within the Catholic world at the time, there were divisions, right. you know, in terms of the clergy, as well as the laity, but also within the clergy and the laity. And not just in Germany and in Austria, but also in France, you know, uh, later on during the occupation. Uh, how do you work out the compromises? And then how do you get along with the people who compromise too much? Yeah, yeah. And it seems to me that he never got bogged down in that kind of stuff yeah, yeah, that so yeah. easily and frequently, you know, paralyzes. Yeah. Well, can I make two points? Because you've both, <laughs> you've both made two good, very, very astute points. The one I want to make about uh, being uh, in some sense, the protagonist. I, I could completely agree. He, he, in some sense, owned his his existence in a unique way. But it's also worth saying that he lived by by divine providence in a unique yeah. way. And that decision to leave Germany was really fateful in the full sense because he didn't really know what he would do. He went into a completely uncertain future. So whatever you know, whatever control and, and a sense of purpose one sees in him, right. that practically and humanly, it was completely unknown. And his poor wife at the time, his first wife, Gretchen, had to live with all of this uncertainty. Right. So that's, that's, I think, important to recognize that that's, that's perhaps even the deeper yeah. strain in his life. Yeah, he threw himself into the arms of God he when he abandoned in Germany. Indeed, right. indeed. And he threw her, too. And, and her, but to but she was, he, he says many times in the memoirs, even in places that are not in the book, that she was completely in, in agreement with him and that she displayed her own heroism because she didn't have this kind of bold uh, ca character that he had. To your point, I think it's so important to recognize that, uh, that, the, that von Hildebrand was very unique in not becoming, not even leaning towards the left in his opposition to National Socialism. He thought of them as sort of two twin evil brothers. Right. Yeah, uh, right. They had, at, at root, they had many of the same features. They had the collectivism, they had the materialism. And so von Hildebrand and this this newspaper that he founded in Vienna was anti-nationalist, anti-Nazi, and anti-communist. Right. And this was a very rare thing. He had many allies who were, they shared the anti-Nazism, but they, they leaned, they flirted with the left. By the way, he also had many allies who were anti-Nazi, but they were anti-Semitic. So again, right. it was right. this totality yeah, of the right. rejection. Yeah. You know, yeah. the, 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 the dynamic combination of virtues, you know, you could isolate them, but it's, it's the personality right. who had a capacity for God from an early age, and then that's supernaturalized through the sacraments, the grace of conversion. I especially like the incident where Andre 
Kolnai, the convert from Judaism, who becomes something of a Thomist philosopher of sorts, but left-leaning, you know, and that meeting that you describe, and or he describes, and, and how awkward it was because this friend just kept sort of the, you know, kept steering the conversation against Kolnai. To discredit him, yeah. Yeah, oh, and, and at the same time, this deep sympathy that von Hildebrandt had towards this young scholar for his wisdom, but also his virtue and courage and this sort of thing, you know. It didn't end well, but you could just sense that regret. I'm like, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's the kind of guy who can build bridges in all sorts yeah. of directions and create a big tent for Catholics and non-Catholics the, the real bridges, right? Because he spoke about the, 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 the Nazi sympathizing Catholics as wanting yes. to build bridges. For example, this terrible moment where a theologian speaks of the Third Reich as the realization right. of the body of Christ yeah. in the modern world. I mean, just these extraordinary statements. But, I, but absolutely, one of the things that I love about Hildebrand's memoirs is that because they were written for his wife, Alice, who was much younger, so the, the backstory there is that uh, we wouldn't have this story had she not been much younger because she said, I've missed so much of your life. And he said, I'll write it for you. So he wrote wow. personally. She yeah. was his views. She was the original uh, audience. And of course, later it became known that Hildebrand was writing a memoir. So I'm sure it crept into his mind that he was speaking to a larger audience, but it was his wife. And I think the confessional tone that one gets, these, these moments where he says, I really did someone wrong. I, I should have stepped forward. Or he speaks, for example, of a man he didn't visit. Um, and, and this man then dies. And he, was, he said, I didn't visit him as I was afraid he would try to talk me out of my plans. It was someone be, who was much older who had helped oh, him as a young man. And he said, I, I, I should have gone to see him. And it was a great act of uncharity and lack of love. Mm. And the way in which he can accuse himself of these, in, sen in some sense, very minor flaws, given right. his hero was right. so yeah. Has his cause been introduced? <laughs> because it really should be, I think. There, there's something so noble about him. His whole life is consecrated yeah. to the truth. And, and the other side of that coin is this consuming passion uh, against everything that stands athwart uh, the truth. Uh, his, his hostility uh, to the movement of Nazism and, and nationalism and the anti-Semitism. I mean, his, his willingness to identify uh, with, with these lost souls yeah. mm -hmm. that, that Hitler is targeting. Yeah. I, I think that is, is, is so endearing. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I want to jump back a little bit to the National Socialism and Communism. Why did he, why did Hildebrand think that it was so attractive to the people of his day? What, what really drew them in and buy into that kind of false ideology? Yeah. Well, the answer to that question, which is very important, gets at something that I like to emphasize, which is that there, the, Van Hildebrand was by no means a kind of simple-minded, black-and-white opponent right, of, right. of National Socialism. He had a great sensibility, sensitivity for, 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 for people and why they were susceptible to things, why were they drawn to communism and National Socialism. And that, that makes his critique, in some sense, more human, and I think it allowed him to engage people. And he knew, he sensed at the time that there was a great yearning for community. Mm -hmm. he, he speaks of what he calls, he refers to liberal individualism, by which he means a vision of the person cut off both from God and from each other. Right. And then, of course, you have this mechanization going on in the early 20th right. century, which right. further cuts people off from a sense of the organic. And he, he recognized that National Socialism and Communism both spoke to that need. They, they, mm. they, they, they offered the, it wasn't the real thing, and of course, uh, people would ultimately be disappointed, but at the moment, it fed that need. And we all know that feeling of, of, of perhaps feeling initially that we're nourished by something that turns out to be... Like drinking salt, salt water when salt you're water, Right, yeah. precisely, or junk food. It, right. it, there's a certain initial appeal. And so that, 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 I think that ability to constantly recognize the appeal, so in other words, not just to reject the not error... Not to dismiss it entirely. But, but yeah. to recognize right. the appeal and to somehow disabuse people of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the short answer, really, to why Hitler appealed to so many is Versailles. Uh, Germany was going to avenge 
uh, the, the betrayal uh, of, of the First World War. We've got to recover our greatness. And here's a guy, this strutting uh, paper hanger who has promised us grandeur and he's building highways or like Mussolini, he's making the damn trains run on time. And that appeals to people, power, dynamism, the vortex and this paganism this yeah. appeal to the ancient gods, these Nordic gods. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's very sexy stuff. Yeah. It was the perfect fake narrative to somehow take advantage of Germany at its moment of vulnerability. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And those are still at work in a lot of our ideologies of today. Absolutely. <laughs> he also recognized early on the need to go beyond just the philosophizing to the point where you recognize that we're dealing with comp- competing worldviews. Yeah. You know, and yeah. the notion of a worldview, you know, as a, as a former Protestant who became a Catholic, you know, almost three decades ago, I'm still waiting for Catholics to catch up to the fact that we need more than just sound philosophy, good catechesis. We need to give people that sense of a worldview. That's, right. that's what he was intent upon doing way back before. Well, that, that's what he discovered Patrick. in Dolphus. I mean, here is a guy who wants to root the, the society, yeah. uh, the, the social vision in quadragesimo anno. Yeah. I mean, let's recover the papal encyclicals of yeah. Pius XI. Extraordinary, breath-catching stuff. What politician today yeah. who happens to be a baptized Catholic is drawn to that kind of vision. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's right. Yeah. It's interesting, by the way, in the, in, the, in the mission statement that he wrote for his Vienna paper, which, by the way, is, it's, 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 it's sort of been overlooked, but I made a point of putting it into the pictures in this volume because it's almost, it's almost certainly written by him. I can't completely verify, but it just sounds too, 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 too significant and authentic. <laughs> but he says two things. He says, first of all, the mission of this journal is to repropose the great notions of the West, of human dignity, of community, right. of, of human nature. But then he also says that there needs to be a conversion within the elite. So he had a very practical sense. It wasn't just this idea that we're going to we're going to sort of project philosophical ideals into the culture. We're going to offer a vision, a new vision, and we're going to bring it to bear on those who can implement it, like Dolphus. And did he have these nightly discussions uh, that were staged, and hundreds of people would attend? I mean, this was sort of the intellectual elite of of Austrian uh, 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 society. Uh, What what strikes me about him are the people he knows. The people that he encounters, like Etienne, Jolson, Maritain, Guardini, just amazing people, titanic figures, and he's one of them. Right, 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 right. 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 And yet, at those various, those these wonderful salons that he began hosting at his great home in Munich, which then continued in Vienna. In Munich, they were liturgical and, and worldview themes, and in, in Vienna, they became very much political. Right, I see. And 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 absolutely, they gathered the the, the elites of the world, but they never they were never close to anyone who was sincere and searching. So the I the see. maids and the servants and the people oh. he met on the street or the the little old lady. They in were the back part of the, of the they were conversation. There as well. huh. Right, oh, that's powerful. But it goes back to that whole idea of worldview. I mean, right. that's 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 the beauty that you find both from whether his time in Germany or when he was in Austria. It changed a little bit in the sense of some of the audience or some of the yeah. specifics, but that worldview we, we lose. Well, it, it's, it's, it's a view that's anchored to solidarity. Mm. I mean, he's, he's everybody's neighbor. We all belong to Christ. It's the mystical body, which nationalism wanted to eclipse, and he refused to allow that to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, stay with us on Franciscan University Presents for our next segment. Hildebrand, one of the great things he did in those years in Vienna was to somehow cleanse this residual anti-Semitism from the minds and hearts of Catholics. And historians of the period now say that he did very much to prepare the ground in the church 
for the declaration at Vatican II about Christians and Jews, which inaugurated a whole new era in Catholic-Jewish relations. I am a communication arts major, the president of Film Club, and an editor for Franciscan University Presents. It's really great to be able to work on Franciscan University Presents because it is a national television show on EWTN, and in a lot of other schools you're not going to have that kind of ability to put that on a resume. When I graduate, I know that I'm going to, to be firm in sticking with my faith and you know going to daily mass and free confession and things like that, because instead of just learning with my mind or just focusing on schoolwork, I, I actually you know, can grow with my whole person. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. This entire program springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Uh, this is being taped right now in the Communication Arts Studio here on our campus. Our students are running the cameras and the equipment. Our regular panelists, our theology faculty here at the university. Uh, John Henry, we've been talking about uh, a great man and his legacy. Um, and you know, as we as we probably have missed many many things that are both in the book uh, as well as his life and in his kind of mark on this world, um, and also his legacy as he goes forward. So, but as we look a little bit forward uh, to what kind of a model he could be for us here today, there might be some things that we still need to fill in. So I'm going to give you an open line to say if there's some points that we want to draw back to, but then let's draw into what kind of model could we look forward indeed, to. Indeed, indeed. Uh, well, let, let me just give our our viewers uh, a, a kind of high-speed uh, summary of what happened to him in Vienna and how he got out with the invitation, of course, that they, they should really read it in his own words, yes. which, which the book provides. So he arrives in Vienna, uh, moves there in December of 1933, and establishes this, this, this anti-Nazi newspaper, which becomes very much the premier uh, publication in the intellectual and the worldview battle uh, against National Socialism and Communism, and very quickly establishes him as the leading voice. Mm. Uh, you know, he had been known to the Nazis in Munich, but coming to Vienna, he in some sense becomes known to the world. He even becomes known in the United States. There's, there's yeah. a memorandum I was able to dig up in the FBI archives, right. a quote, That's signed right. by J. Edgar Hoover, <laughs> describing him as a famous foe of Nazism and, quote, right. the, the editor of the most violently anti-Nazi newspaper in Austria. So right. what's That's pretty begin? good authority, J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> so, absolutely. And Hitler was, was aware of him. By the way, Hitler knew the family very well because of Adolf and Hildebrand's sculptures. So Hildebrand was a kind of Kennedy figure, you might say, mm -hmm. in terms of the family stature back home right. in Munich. Yeah. But he becomes very much the, the center, one of the central voices in Vienna. But uh, uh, an anecdote that captures, let's just say, the spirit with which he conducted himself. You could imagine this would be a period of great anxiety and fear and darkness, and in many respects, humanly it was. And yet he, there was such a sense of being carried by, by God's providence that he lived a very peaceful existence, somewhat uh, in contrast to his poor wife, who was very worried for his safety. On one occasion, he was called in by the, the chief of the, the Viennese secret police, and this is very Viennese in a certain sense. The, the man says to him, you know, we have credible, um, uh, uh, the, the underground has, uh, we've, we, our spies have, have drummed up news that there's a, there's a plan for your assassination. And he says, it would be very embarrassing for me to have a political assassination in my, in my, in my precinct. And but Hildebrand <laughs> on, said, it would be very embarrassing watch. for me as well. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And he said, and, and, and it's so beautiful what he says. He said, he, as he left, he said, that certainly this man's words left, made an impression on me, but it in no way changed my resolve to fight, and in no way robbed me of my peace, because I was convinced that I was carrying out the will of God. Right. He, and was he was a man on a mission. And he was, he was right. a man absolutely fearless. I mean, doesn't he go to Budapest to give a talk? Yeah. Hungary is somewhat 
friendlier uh, to Nazi right. Germany right. than Austria. And he really is in, in objective fear of his life, but he doesn't, he doesn't experience that fear. There, there is a lightness about him, a grace, a radiance, yeah. a, a mirth even. He, he doesn't take any of this terribly seriously yeah. because God is hovering about him. Get so, back so to the idea that there's a popular impression that he flees. Yeah, yeah. And I think you do a good job in highlighting the fact that's misleading, that's inaccurate. It's, it's very inaccurate. The, I mean, of course, there, there, were, there were considerations of safety, as I mentioned in the previous episode. He, he, you know, he, he certainly couldn't have done in Munich what he did in Vienna. But the decision to leave was entirely a decision, you might say, of vocation, mm, yeah. uh, linked to his, his identity, as a ca- his self-understanding as himself as a Catholic and as a philosopher. So the entire work, because think of it, he could have at any point in time have left Vienna. He could have gone to Switzerland. He was a Swiss citizen. Right. He could have gone to the States. I mean, he, had, he would have had the resources and the reputation. But it, it is, I think it's, it's plausible that if he had waited eight additional hours in Vienna, he would be dead. He That's would right. have been captured, right. tortured by the Gestapo, and murdered. Right. So and what, his voice would have been silent. That's that's right. So one has to say that he didn't, I, I like to say that he went into a kind of voluntary exile from Germany right. to, in, into, into Austria to speak against National Socialism. But in 1938, when Hitler invaded Austria in March of 1938, then he did flee right. because there was no choice. That's right. And this becomes... And he ends the, up in the U.S. And he ends up in the U.S. After, but, but after almost two years. So he, right. he spends two years, uh, a relatively peaceful year in France, in Toulouse, teaching philosophy. Yeah. But then as Hitler, uh, right. the Nazis invade France, again, his life is in terrible danger. Yeah. And uh, frankly, it's... It's, it's really, it's, it's a story made for the silver right. screen. I mean, right. And, and not only I'm waiting is it a, for it to come out in theaters. Not only is it a great story of, of heroism and survival and escape and everything that you want in a, and, and drama, but it's a great story of, of, of characters who would otherwise be forgotten, all of these people who helped him along the way. Mm. You know, there, there was a beautiful moment where a priest says to him, who's just met him, he says, Professor, I've just received an inheritance. And do me the favor of accepting half of it or accepting all right. of it. Right. I mean, Hildebrand's eyes fill with tears, and he said he couldn't believe the kind of charity that was extended to him. And his wife Alice said in later years, she said, wasn't it difficult for you to go right, from living right. in the mansion in Munich, you know, to the slums of Toulouse? And he said, I can't believe you even asked me, asked me this right. question. I would never have exchanged the opportunity to experience the sweetness of Christian charity. Right. Wow. That's so disarming. Wow. It's so disarming, but that's the man. Right. Right. That's the man who... who, who and, and obviously others were touched by his example because Maritain arranges for him uh, to get a teaching post at Fordham through the Rockefeller Foundation mm-hmm. because he's one of a hundred European intellectuals who really did champion the cause of the Jew. Uh, and specifically, it was it was a hundred Jewish intellectuals that they helped escape, I, but two Christian voices. Right, yeah. One was Hildebrand, one was his student Baldwin Schwartz, my, my father's right. teacher, oh, in fact, right. for their work on right. behalf of the Jewish right, people. Right. So a kind of acknowledgement of their contribution. Mm. But, but I mean, some people minimize the, the threat, but it was very real. Von Papen, uh, the, the uh, ambassador to Austria from Germany, outwardly a pious Catholic, but really yeah. a snake, something reptilian about him. He, I mean, in an exchange of letters with Himmler, and Hitler, they have marked him uh, as an enemy of the Third Reich. We're going to kill him. He's the the greatest opponent of National Socialism in Austria. He's got to be destroyed. That's That's right. 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 And the highest compliment in some ways comes from von Papen when he says uh, to Hildebrand's brother-in-law that Hildebrand is the greatest obstacle to National Socialism in Austria. Enemy number (laughs) one. So so what kind of lessons can we draw from his his life as a model? Well, we look at the pro-life movement, you know, and and what kind of uh, lessons can the pro-life movement or, you know, even some people talk about the single-issue voters and things of that nature. What is von Hildebrand 
say to the, the today in yeah. our struggles? Well, I, I would be delighted to hear from, from my, my, your panelists here, but a, but a few initial thoughts. First of all, I, I like to think of this book as a kind of field manual for moral witness. Mm. You know, there's, there's something so concrete in the example and in the moral wisdom that it contains, and it contains uh, almost as much uh, ammunition, you might say, as there are issues and concerns because one can delve into it. But on the issue, for example, of the single voter issue, Van Hildebrand, of course, would have seen the life issue and all of the surrounding uh, questions of human dignity as sort of the preeminent issues, and he would have been very much defend. Uh, he would have opposed this idea that that one has to somehow uh, diminish the significance of that issue. But I think it's also worth perhaps allowing him to challenge us and the yeah. pro-life movement. What, for example, one thing that I think would have perhaps distressed him about uh, about the, the pro-life movement today would have been the fact that it it, it articulates itself perhaps narrowly in terms of the moral dimension, but for example, look at his critique of National Socialism. He critiqued it in terms of worldview, not just in terms of ethical considerations. He thought, he spoke of, of National Socialism as a kind of betrayal of German culture. He accused it of, of kitsch and <laughs> falsification right. of real cultural values. And for von Hildebrand, those cultural values were necessary to sustain a culture of life, you might yeah. say. Yes. And I think he would look at our pro-life movement today and say, you know, in certain respects, it doesn't look sufficiently different from the mainstream culture. Right, right, you know, right. With so it has to, to present a whole new worldview. Right, right, exactly. Okay, and that's part of it, but it's not the, the sum. That's what it takes to stick, you might okay. say. Otherwise, it's too intellectual, it's too narrow. Okay, yeah. okay. That's well, he problem. really was a Catholic Renaissance man. That's right, I, that's I right. I think. That's right. And, and the heroic personal witness, I think, is what stands head and shoulders above uh, everything else. You know, I'm, I'm going to press the fast forward button again, even though it covers material that's not in this book. You know, in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, where he's teaching at Ford, where he's doing philosophy, where he is, you know, teaching future professors, uh, including his future wife, Alice. Uh, phenomenology is his methodology that he got from Husserl, that he transforms and makes his own. I must admit, I've never really understood it all that well. It's not an easy sort of philosophical method. And yet at the same time, uh, Wojtyla, who is schooled in Poland as a Thomist, the future John Paul, uh, is a personalist, you know, and it seems to me that there is a, uh, a way in which von Hildebrand preserves one of the most important philosophical insights, and that is what it is to see the human person. Right. Mm. And he does so in a philosophical tradition that many Catholics saw as alien. Right. And I don't understand, I'm sort of like looking at the stained glass windows from the sidewalk. I don't really understand it all that well, but in some ways, he's not just somebody who reacted to Vatican II after it was over. He was a pioneering figure, a kind of father of Vatican II, yeah, yeah. who prepared the way for it in, in so the best ways. way. Yeah. In so many respects, yeah. I mean, there, there's that one that. book uh, he wrote, which I, I think had a huge impact in my own life, Liturgy and Personality. Oh, right, right, right. And I was, I was so astonished to learn that it took him about three weeks yeah. to write it. Yeah. I mean, most people can't read a book in, in three weeks. And, and incidentally, the Dolphus book, he, he, I think he uh, batted it out in about 12 days. Yeah. <laughs> After Dolphus's murder, he he wrote a, a tribute book yeah. to, to, to defend the legacy study. of Dolphus and churned right, it out in no time at all. But he is a father of the council, uh, yeah. and, and I think in the aftermath of the council, the abuses, uh, yeah. his prophetic voice was, was sometimes a voice in the wilderness, but he rose against. Yeah. Uh, you know, this chorus of, mm -hmm. uh, of, of idiocy that had taken possession yeah. of, of the church. Yeah. See, I mean, that's the, that's the first exposure I had to von Hildebrand, liturgy and personality, you know, his defense of Humanae Vitae, mm -hmm. uh, yes. the Trojan horse in the city of Gaino. These, oh, yes. I mean, these were 
sort of like, you know, in the 60s and 70s, what he had been doing in the 20s and 30s, right. you know, but in an entirely different cultural and right. an ecclesial milieu. Right. And I just thought, man, what a voice. And yeah. what a leader. I mean, because he's a layperson too, as well as a convert. And at a time where, back in the 20s and 30s, lay people in Germany didn't do theology or morality. I mean, right. philosophy, yeah. But his defense of purity, for example, way back, mm -hmm. his theology of marriage, or at least his understanding of, the, of chastity and oh, yeah. uh, a positive yeah. value. Yeah. Uh, and it had a real catalyzing influence, I think, on on, on Pope Paul in, in writing Humanae Vitae, this, this insight that love is more than just babies. That's it, right. It's That's the right. unitive experience, yeah. it's, it's love. Yeah. You know, sex is about the exchange of love between yeah. husband and wife. Yeah. It's open to life, yeah. but it's not exclusively about making babies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if this is supposed to be a question, you've teed up a lot, so I don't know what we have time for. <laughs> well, I'll let you tell Yeah, whatever you want to go well, Why don't you tell us the story about your father meeting von Hildebrand for the first time? Well, let me try to weave a few things together just sure. so I could, because you've said so many important things. So my father was a student of Hildebrand, one of his, a member of this sort of final generation of students mm -hmm. in, the, in the late 60s and 70s. My father was a student at Georgetown, and as a senior in 1966, he invites Van Hildebrand, who he's aware of as a, as a writer, to speak at the university. And Van Hildebrand comes to speak on a giornamento and the interpretation of the council. A giornamento, explain that. What is that? Yeah. Well, uh, let me let you explain it as the, well, as the house a, theologian here. It's what John the Twenty-Third called for in calling the council, a sort of the updating Vatican of council. the faith. Yeah. yeah. That's so right. Vatican II is going to kind of renew the Catholic faith so that people can hear it in new ways. That's right, that's right. And but so it was misunderstood. It's hijacked. Yes. That's right. Like, and, that, yeah. and therein lies Van Hildebrand's critique of the council, yeah. which was to say that, that much of that, there was, there was a sort of opportunism, you might say, yeah. in, the, in the aftermath of the council and many liberal voices seized on this idea of a giornamento and renewal to, in some sense, reinvent uh, right. dimensions right. of the church. And so Hildebrand, with this prophetic clarity that he had in fighting National Socialism, uh, carried out that voice, you might say, that work again in the aftermath of the council. But much more important, which I think needs to be established, it's not fully accepted today, is Hildebrand is the father of the council. I think many of his fans from the 60s and 70s, they, they identified with him because they felt alienated in this new church of the mm -hmm. post-conciliar mm -hmm. world. And so for them, Many, many, many of them were, in fact, much more deeply critical of the council than Van Hildebrand ever was. But on on the on the council's teaching on marriage, this affirmation of the role of love, on the on the church's teaching on the Jews, a significant contribution. I mean, Van Hildebrand was so significant as as a Catholic voice, so untainted by the anti-Semitism right. found in Christian circles in the 20s and 30s. So that work of purification right. that he provided lays the groundwork there. So one can work out, I think, innumerable. Um, well, the, the centrality of the lay apostolate for yeah, renewing that, that well, the temporal well. order. This guy spearheaded that. And embodied it. And yeah. embodied it. You know, it's so remarkable that as a lay, you know, one didn't sort of jump out of one's discipline, particularly in Germany or in Austria. You know, if you were a philosopher, you didn't become a theologian. And yet he produced these works of great right. theological significance. Right, right. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Well, I, if you can do this very briefly, what's his legacy, particularly in his stance in Europe? You know, what legacy do you see there as you look forward uh, in his? Well, I think that his voice will be rediscovered, uh, particularly through this book. I, I've been working closely uh, with, with leading European figures like Rocco Buttiglione, the great Italian statesman in front of John Paul. 
uh, I've been able to begin collaborating with Karl Theodor zu Gutenberg, who was the a former defense minister of Germany and a member uh, related by, by marriage to some of the anti-Nazi families, the Stauffenberg family and others. And so the idea is in part to help Europe recover their own son here. Mm. But then also, I think it's important to recognize that his legacy lives on under the name of others. So the vision for Europe as a family of nations, the Euro vision of Europe as a Christian culture, uh, which John Paul and Otto von Habsburg and Helmut Kohl, these were all voices in some sense indebted to von Hildebrand. And so his legacy lives on, perhaps hidden, but it will be rediscovered. His star rises again through this book. Right. Excellent, yeah. excellent. Stay with us for the final section of Franciscan University Presents. I had the great privilege of personally knowing Dietrich von Hildebrand, and I remember vividly my first meeting with him at Georgetown University, where I was a student, in 1966, he gave a talk entitled The True Meaning of Vatican II. And never had I experienced a, a, a great thinker speaking not just as a thinker, but as a passionate man of faith. I thought to myself as I listened to von Hildebrand, I've heard a lot of professors speak in my college years, now, for the first time, I'm hearing a confessor, someone who not only thinks deeply, but is a witness. I'm in the 4 plus 1 program here for counseling. It is very academically challenging, but the classes are a lot of fun. The teachers do love what they teach, and they know their fields very well. If you're interested in mission, that's a big thing here. I did San Diego for two years. That was a youth ministry mission. There are a lot of opportunities here to be actively pro-life, praying outside the abortion clinic. There's a big group that goes to the March of Life here from campus. There's just so much you can do as far as faith goes. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. This is our final segment. Uh, it's been an exciting and action-packed uh, show here. Uh, Regis, could you start yeah. us off? Uh, yeah, a couple of things uh, on a personal note. This was an impressive performance, John Henry, and, and we're all so pleased uh, uh, to see how tall uh, you sit now in the saddle. I mean, some of us remember you when you were just out of nappies. <laughs> Four or five, you've come a long way, baby. Uh, Should have got so tall. But the theme, the theme that you ended with, uh, I, I'd like to take up and, and maybe embroider, uh, if I might, the, the, the sense of European unity, of belonging to something larger than this nationalist tribe, belonging to the church. Uh, you know, Belloc uh, mistakenly said the faith is Europe, Europe is the faith. Well, the faith is everything, not just Europe. But Europe is meaningless. She has no identity, no coherence in the absence of the Catholic faith. That's her seed, her foundation. But I was struck in the book by the invitation that Gilson had, had, had issued and, and wanted von Hildebrand to come to the Sorbonne and help celebrate uh, Albert the Great, who was about to be uh, 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 named a doctor of the church. I, I don't have the date, probably the early 30s or late 20s. And, and, and von Hildebrand, of course, accepts the invitation. Uh, and and Gilson, in his remarks, uh, touches on two significant moments in the history of the Sorbonne, in, in, the, in the 13th century 
and the 17th century. You have a disproportion of foreign professors to native French professors, and, and that is something to applaud and welcome. He invites this German-speaking philosopher uh, to Paris, uh, to France, to adorn uh, this, this event, to pay honor to another German, Albert the Great, and, and they draw attention to all of these foreigners, you know, Thomas Aquinas, Alexander of Haley's, none of these guys are French speakers. And yet the Sorbonne, Paris, uh, during these two pivotal moments was a truly international place, uh, you know, a place of study and culture. And this is what we need to restore. And this is what Gilson was hoping that von Hildebrand could, could address, and he surely does. Mm -hmm. This lost unity, this vanished culture that is common to all of us, not that we're French or German, but that we're Catholic. And that was the ground of his objection uh, to Germany's atrocious treatment of Belgium at the beginning of the Great War. Uh, this was wrong, and I'm a German, and I'm saying so, but because I'm a Catholic, this has to be condemned. That quality, I think, runs through his life uh, like a golden thread. And you've certainly uh, uh, put it uh, uh, right in the book uh, on every page, mm. which makes it a real page turner. Mm. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. No, a few highlights. First of all, I'm captivated by von Hildebrand as a lay apostle. Mm. Uh, the way he would live as a Catholic, but also how bilingual he was. He could speak within the church to his fellow Catholics um, and stir them up to faith. He could also speak, not just intramurally, but intercollegiate. You know, he could speak out of the culture in a hostile and secular environment. And, you know, as a lay apostle who could do both, you know, he ends up becoming, what, a, fa a, a godfather to over a hundred converts, and, yeah. and many of them Jews, as you pointed out to me. Um, but at the same time, I think the greatest and easiest point of access for most people for Dietrich von Hildebrand would be the writings that came out uh, after Vatican II because he was explaining celibacy at a point where nobody else could seem to get it. He was explaining humane vitae uh, in non-abstract or non-scholastic terms. He was also explaining the liturgy and, and, and helping people to kind of rediscover tradition without becoming rad or mad trads, you know, as it were. And he did so by recognizing the centrality of this unique mystery of the person. You know, and I think that's why Ratzinger or Wojtyla, you know, St. John Paul, just gravitated to this kind of man and his work because he recognized that each person is truly, you know, singular and unique and uh, divine, as it were, bearing God's image. And so, you know, when people look out there, I would say liturgy and personality would be a wonderful place to begin, you know, and an easy point of access. But his defense of humane vitae, other things that are so timely, transformation in Christ, you know, maybe not for beginners, but intermediates. But uh, this is a man whose work has got to not only be rediscovered, but also a man whose, uh, whose lay apostolate has got to be replicated. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. John Henry? Well, wonderful remarks. I'd like to address a question that I often get, which is, you know, who is this book for? What is the significance of the book? And as I've worked on, on the manuscript now for over 10 years and gathering the text and translating it, mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've found myself at various times thinking that the book was f primarily for philosophers or for, for theologians or historians. 
And in fact, my early attempts to, to place it with a major publisher failed because it was always very intellectual. I would frame it sort of in terms of the battle of ideas in a, in a narrow sense. And thankfully, the efforts to, to, to win a publisher like Random House forced me to, 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 to delve much more deeply into the narrative dimension, into the, the story of, of this great protagonist. And, and over the years, my, my work in this has convinced me that in fact, this is precisely a book for everyone. Uh, first of all, because it is such a moving and arresting personal uh, confessional testimony. Uh, but, but beyond that also because it, it touches on so many themes. Mm -hmm. And for people who are looking for guidance, who are looking for, 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 for moral wisdom, for clarity, for inspiration and nourishment, it's the sort of book that can do it. And so it, without relativizing the meaning of the book, without saying that philosophers and historians and theologians won't in some sense determine perhaps some of its objective themes, I think it's the kind of book that in some sense its meaning is everyone's reading of it. Yes. Because everyone encounters it differently. Everyone draws a different kind of nourishment. Everyone draws a different challenge from it. And this is ultimately very Hildebrandian. Uh, th those who know his works know that he, there's, a, there's a little Latin phrase, tua res agitur, this concerns you, which, <laughs> which he drops into his text, sometimes almost strangely. You, you know, you're reading and you think, goodness, he really is telling me this. Yeah. And I think that that's ultimately how this book needs to be read. It can't just be read as a, as a sort of testament or even a, a, an important book of commentary or ideas. It's a book that has to challenge us personally. And then I think about what von Hildebrand would want today. And I think that he would, of course, welcome and support those who would be, who have the ability to give the kind of public witness, people who go into public life or into politics. But I think he would be just as happy, you know, to, to, to know that, uh, that, that a simple and ordinary person, even someone without the gifts that he had, had found their own call to witness, right. their own call to, what, what is my act of courage? What is my act of witness? If, if someone finds that and lives that out um, in, in whatever way, I think von Hildebrand would feel that, that that very same vocation that he answered in such an extraordinary way was being fulfilled in, in that person's life. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you for, uh, for being on the show and for the work that you're doing. Um, if you've enjoyed or been intrigued by our conversation, uh, we have the preface to the book. It's a great teaser. It's a great getting a little bit more uh, depth uh, on the subject here, a fateful decision, uh, the preface to my battle against Hitler. Um, you can get it at faithandreason.com or just for asking. Um, he offers a, a unique opportunity for us, uh, as John Henry said, to kind of look into someone's life um, and allow that life to inspire you. And ultimately, that, that's what history should offer, an opportunity to learn, uh, to be inspired, to embolden our, embolden our own witness. In this day and age, we need more prophetic voices like von Hildebrand, and you have a role to play in that. Uh, search within you, what is God calling you to do uh, in sharing our Catholic worldview uh, in, the, in this world today. There are so many things that are evil, that need to be called evil, uh, that need to be called out with a true and, and, and compassionate and very deep understanding of it. Um, thanks for watching Franciscan University Presents. Uh, this whole program springs forth from our very mission, which is to form the students who are transforming the world. And uh, I want to invite you to be a part of that mission uh, by taking classes here on our campus in Steubenville or online. Maybe you could join us at one of our inspiring uh, summer conference programs or join us on our pilgrimages to holy shrines around the world. Or go to faithandreason.com to be equipped and give the given you the tools you need uh, to go out in the new evangelization. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs 
by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.